Welcome to On the Brain. Today we will explore how cutting-edge data analysis is revolutionizing our understanding of cognition, behavior, and the mysteries of consciousness. Imagine decoding the very essence of who we are through the power of data. So we are here with another exciting episode of On the Brain Season 2 and today we have Kelsey Harkness with us. Thank you Kelsey for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Good. So Kelsey, tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do. So I am a fourth year PhD candidate in Doctors Karamirius and Signe Bray's lab, and I very generally study attention and executive function within the context of functional connectivity and neuroimaging and uh, neurodevelopment. Right. Can you tell us a bit more about attention and executive function? What is it? That's a good question. Um, kind of complicated question. There's a lot of different definitions out there for attention and executive function. Sometimes attention is included in executive function, sometimes it's not. But very generally, uh, attention refers to what you are or are not attending to at any given time. Executive function is very generally defined as something that requires something called higher order cognition or anything that requires more thought than anything like breathing or blinking your eyes. Okay. So if you can help me understand that why uh, looking at the data of executive functions is important and how do you relate it to neuroimaging then? Yeah. So executive function and attention dysregulation have been associated with a whole bunch of different neurological conditions. So stroke, concussion, autism, ADHD, conduct disorder, like all sorts of things, like basically anything that has to do with an injury or dysregulation in your brain has been connected back to executive function dysregulation. Um, there are a lot of different types of dysregulation in executive function. So things like planning, memory, uh, all those things are executive functions and they can be affected in different ways. So what we're interested in looking at is whether there are executive functions that are more or less affected in things like ADHD and autism and whether those things are related to severity or neural networks. Okay. So I think then I will ask you to share a bit more about ADHD and executive function. Um, ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but why do we need to look at executive function in ADHD or autism? So executive function is really important. Um, and if you have a dysregulation in executive function, it can make it really hard to operate in society. Um, things like academic achievement are affected by executive function. The ability to get a high-paying job is affected by executive functioning. All these things have been linked to um, the ability of someone to have these higher-level executive functions. And if we understand how executive function is related to ADHD, one of the things that we know is that early intervention is really important. So if we know what kind of things we need to intervene on early in development, we can target those things and hopefully improve those outcomes. 
Wonderful. So can you help me understand a bit more about the executive functions and what you exactly you're looking at? What kind of data points or if you are talking about neuroimaging, what are you looking for? Yeah, so there are a lot of different executive functions, like I said. Um, it really depends on the assessment you're looking at as to how you're defining executive function and what kind of things you're including. Um, the assessment that we use that's available through the database that we have accessed is the NIH toolbox, which is pretty widely used. There's, an, there's a lot of different cognitive outcome scores on there. So planning, um, changing behaviors, those kind of things are all included in the NIH toolbox. Um, there's a measure for attention, a measure for executive function, planning, memory, all of those kinds of things. And when we're talking about neural function, what we're looking at is the relationship between different brain regions and when they activate. So each brain region will activate at different time courses, and we can look at the correlation between those different regions and figure out through different type of different types of math whether those regions are temporally correlated, which means they tend to fire at the same time. Okay. Wonderful. So you talked about NIH toolbox and databases. So what kind of databases are these and what kind of data exists on those databases? Sure. So there's a lot of different databases out there. And the benefit of these databases is that you're looking at a larger sample size. And the bigger the sample size, the more power you have, essentially. So you want more data. And so with these bigger databases, we can tease apart more questions because we can look at much smaller differences between groups. Um, I use the ABCD database or the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development database, um, which is based in the United States or 21 different study sites. And what that does is it allows us to make inferences about a larger population. So when you're doing any sort of work, in research, you're looking at a sample of a population. And unfortunately, that sample can be biased, and a lot of times it is. Um, but the benefit of these types of databases is they try their best to eliminate as much bias as possible. So databases like the ABCD database intentionally recruit to try to have as representative of a sample as possible of the wider population. And that's just one example of many. There are a few databases also in Calgary that exist, a lot of them longitudinal, looking at changes over time. So I think that that means you're working with a lot of data at a very large scale. Um, can you share a bit more about that experience, the data analytics, and what kind of skills it requires? Yeah, so that's the one thing I think I didn't expect when I started working with database data, is that you have all this data at your fingertips. You don't actually have to acquire it yourself, but it's a lot of data. <laughs> um, they're big spreadsheets that you can't necessarily go through each participant on your own. Um, so it's a lot more coding for sure. Um, the ABCD database is over 11,000 participants over a period of time. That's incorrect. It's 10,787 participants. Um, over a long period of time. So there's a lot of data. Um, so you have to be really clear about what your research question is going into your analysis. It can be kind of distracting sometimes going through the data because there is so much. 
um, that it's really easy to get distracted or you find something that's interesting and kind of steer off course. So I think it's a lot more important when you're doing database research to really know what you're trying to assess and form a really solid question before you go about your analysis. So I'm curious, actually, about the outcomes of that data analysis. You're working with database and a certain scale of a sample. What outcomes you're expecting, what kind of questions you're asking, and what benefit it would have at the intervention level? You talked about interventions as well. Yeah. Um, so the nice thing about looking at big databases is there's a ton of variability in a lot of these um in these populations. So for example, in ADHD, there's a huge amount of variability when it comes to severity of symptoms, types of symptoms, um, medication, different interventions. There's a ton of variability in the population. So the bigger the sample size, the more of that variability we're able to account for in the model and the more generalizable that data is, especially in populations like ADHD, where there is a huge amount of variability. So do you think that uh, with that much amount of data and you working with these models, we would be able to go towards any machine learning models or deep learning models, just any patient or individual coming in with certain set of attributes and the model could predict, okay, this is what kind of interventions could be needed for that person. Just your thoughts on it. Um, I think that's absolutely possible. I don't know if we're there yet. I mean, that opens a whole host of things to think about within ethics um, and within feasibility, since there is so much variability. Um, no one person is going to be the same. Uh, two people could have the exact same score on an attention measure and present very differently. So I do think that it's possible that potentially in the future something like that does exist. Um, I just don't know if we're quite there. I think in order to get there, we would need more sensitive measures for things like attention and executive function. Do you think are, there are any limitations in the current data that you're working with? Do you need to think that there should be any other parameters included in or any other limitations? Um, it really depends on the database. I'm really lucky ABCD has a lot of data. There's no lack of data in ABCD. They do imaging data. They do genetic data. Um, I've worked on a sleep project, like looking at actigraphy data within the database. Um, so there's a whole lot of data. I think the main thing when it comes to working with database data is narrowing it down and making sure that you're including things that are going to be pertinent to your analysis instead of trying to include too many things. Um, and I think I can ask about maybe the types of interventions, how it can help the individuals with ADHD and autism, um, how their quality of life can be improved, these kind of questions that you are asking from the data. Mm -hmm. So we don't look at quality of life in the analysis that we're doing right now. Um, there are people who have looked at quality of life. And the one thing we do know is that early intervention is super important. So if we can intervene, and I think that the main metric is whether or not there's intervention before school age. Because once a child starts to fall behind, it's kind of hard to catch up. So if we can intervene before it becomes a problem in school, 
I think that has been shown to be the best course of action for those kids. There are a lot of different types of intervention. First one that most people think of is pharmacological intervention. So when we're looking at pharmacotherapeutic, words are hard. (laughs) So stimulant medication is kind of one of the things that people think of first when they think of intervention for ADHD. But there are other behavioral interventions that can be done and have been shown to be effective. Actually, like the most effective thing that has been shown in studies is a combination of both um, stimulant medication and a behavioral intervention. Great. Um, And what future directions do you see from the kind of work that you're doing? Any thoughts around that? Um, I think the biggest thing is understanding. And I think that's something that has been kind of as a society kind of a focus is understanding that there are people who think differently and there are people who behave differently and that's okay and it's actually beneficial and better understanding of how those things can affect people and their ability to function in society. I think that's kind of the biggest piece. I think that it's really important to kind of know that like if you are a part of database data that your data is protected and that Researchers take a lot of care in the data that we have, and we don't take that for granted. And um, individuals who come in and choose to share their time with us and choose to participate in research are very much a part of what we do, and they we appreciate them a lot, and your data is protected. Thank you for highlighting that because I think it could be an important question for anyone who could be part of that database if their data is protected, is it confidential, and what use would be of that data that is being collected. So thank you for highlighting. Yeah, it is It is anonymized, the data. There's no way to trace it back to the individual, and that's across any sort of clinical studies. That's within our ethics. It's required. Um, And just because it's required doesn't mean we do it just because we have to. We do it because it's important and we appreciate our research subjects and we want to make sure that their data is protected and that they feel safe sharing that information with us. So could you summarize um, the most important or interesting finding of your project? That's an interesting question. Um, I think what I find interesting might not be as interesting to other people, I guess. Um, But right now I'm looking at uh, how different types of measures relate to diagnostic status. And that sounds kind of complicated, but very simply what it means is I look at how different ways that we assess things affect whether or not someone's in a diagnostic group. So we look at direct measures. So direct measures being you sit down in a chair with a researcher and they do an assessment with you that directly assesses your ability to perform a skill. We look at indirect measures, which are like questionnaires that we would give to a parent or a teacher or the person themselves to assess things like attention and executive function and we look at how those measures relate to diagnostic status. We've shown that there's not actually a lot of agreement between direct and indirect measures, which is interesting. Uh, I was looking at the correlations today and actually a lot of them are zero. So there's zero correlation between 
an attention measure filled out by a parent and an attention assessment done by a researcher, which I thought was really interesting. Thank you, Kelsey, for your time and sharing interesting highlights of your research.